so much music commentary is just pure douchery. spending some time just hanging here with you i'm your host lindsey tucker thank you thank you aviv uh i'm joined today as always with aviv rubenstein aviv hello hello aviv yes that is i (laughs) how are you doing i'm doing well uh i think we both are like in uh in a weird workplace right now yeah stressful work week it's fucking stressful work week man but it's hump day Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I think my dog's depressed. He doesn't want to play with me. Well, he's not the only one. Just leave him Clearly. alone. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's depressed. I think that's more of a reflection of you than him. I well, I know I'm depressed. <laughs> um, but does your dog ever just like lay for like a day and just yeah. like doesn't want to? She doesn't do like when I'm working, so she just literally curls up and stares at me. And she's like, why aren't we doing anything? But I stopped what I was doing to play with him, and he still wasn't doing shit. He didn't eat his dentabone. Oh, he's mad. Yeah. He's just being uh, spiteful. He's being, he's being bratty. <laughs> he's yeah. pissed, yeah. He is pissed, so I got to go rub his tummy at some point. After this? No, right now. Okay. I'll be back. Okay, pause. You can start, you can start the show. <laughs> Great. So we're here today to talk about the 2006 hit single, Stars Are Blind, from none other Holy than shit. Paris Hilton. I, I'm very, I'm legitimately excited about this. When you when you told me that this was going to be the episode, I, I am legitimately. <laughs> Tell th- me why. <laughs> Tell me why. Uh, because I think that Paris Hilton is one of those people that we all kind of remember incorrectly. and. Much like Rebecca Black was very, was like made fun of in such significant ways. And in later years with the, I don't want to say like the Me Too movement because not everything is the Me Too movement. But like with the idea, with the. Like a change in public perception. And a change in public perception of like what feminism is. Um, We are like seeing her differently. And yeah. I want to learn about that. Yay. Okay. Well, we're going to. And the song's catchy. It is a great song. So, uh, yep. Prepare to be educated. But first. But first. Th- <laughs> th- throw it to the segment, Lindsay. <laughs> we have some mailbag. Hell yeah. Okay. This is from Freddie. <laughs> from Freddie and the Fabs. We're going to hear from Freddie a couple times. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> so. This is, I'm, I love this. This is, this is a long this one. This is the best email it. we've or ever we gotten. I didn't respond gotten. yet in person. So if I haven't, by the time this episode airs, I apologize. I'm very stressed and busy. <laughs> this is the best the email. Best <laughs> I didn't even know what to say. I was speechless. <laughs> Subject is sex and cars, the naked chef, and Morrissey. <laughs> if you notice, no Oxford comma. 
Dearest of Eve and Lindsay, it's Freddie here from Freddie and the Fabs, the official English correspondent for the Lyrics for Lunch podcast. In your last episode, you guys asked for clarification on a few things, so please do let me clarify. <laughs> the, Ox- the Oxford English Dictionary, <laughs> amazing, <laughs> states that dogging is, quote, the practice of watching or engaging in exhibitionist sexual activity in a public place. Aviv, you were right. So it was actually Lindsay who was right about uh, you were talking about like some kind of orgy or key party happening and dancing in the moonlight right right and so i said dogging was like a kind of a lookout point but there is some exhibitionism involved back to freddie normally you would have sex in private but in this case you get a couple engaging in some hanky panky in the back of a car parked in a car park or down a country lane where there won't be a lot of passing traffic but where there will be space for other people to stand around and watch said couple engaging in said hanky panky this isn't necessarily an activity for only for young people as i think (laughs) it was mentioned in the pod but for people of all ages (laughs) sizes races and backgrounds we english are many things and have caused tremendously horrific undertakings around the world but we do not i repeat we do not discriminate when it comes to who can stand around on a wet and rainy tuesday night watching some sweaty couple have at it in the back of a ford (laughs) fiat Incredible Do you want to writing. just host the podcast from now on? This is just really good I writing. Quit. It's fine. <laughs> there are websites where you can find out the best places in your area to go dogging. So if you guys or any uh, any of the listeners find yourself in the UK and want to attend the nearest dogging session, let me know and I'll send you the details. How does Freddie know so much about dogging? Because. <laughs> uh, we'll be there. We'll let you know. Yes. That's our first live broadcast. We'll just be in front of a Ford Fiesta. Um, Now, Jamie Oliver. I can confirm that Jamie Oliver is indeed an English chef famous for being known as the naked chef. Did he cook in the nude? Perhaps, but this is not why he was known as the naked chef. (laughs) Apparently, he was given this name by the producers of his first TV show because Jamie's whole approach to cooking was stripping back all the fancy ingredients and using just simple ingredients and easy recipes to make tasty and healthy meals, therefore making it naked. But that's why. So he's like the British Guy Fieri. He was also the face of the supermarket chain Sainsbury's. As per the advert you guys played, and I do happen to remember a slight bit of controversy at the time, I believe there was a journalist who picked a random recipe out of one of his cookbooks and went to Sainsbury's to try to buy all the ingredients for that recipe. Remember, his whole ethos was ordinary, everyday ingredients to make nice meals. Anyway, the journalist went into three or maybe four stores and couldn't buy all the ingredients in one shop. Scandalous. Scandal. Last Jamie facts, he also went on a healthy eating rampage to make school meals more healthy for kids. So he's the British Michelle Obama, which the government, of course, got behind. So just as I turned up at secondary school, he took the burgers and chips away and replaced them with fucking healthy shit. Thanks, Jamie. (laughs) To bring this, the longest email I think I've ever written back to the subject of music, I would like to refer back to your Nirvana episode where you discussed the top of the Pops performance. Kurt famously sang in the... Oh, uh, Kurt famously sang in the style of an old lounge singer, but later confirmed, according to Charles R. Cross, in the Heavier Than Heavy biography, the only biography approved by the woman who did not kill him that he was trying to impersonate Morrissey that that tracks totally tracks <laughs> and also like that's something that we we wondered aloud on the show too is like we knew he was doing someone we just couldn't figure out who so if even the future play a little bit of that clip 
I do hope this email, A, answers any questions you have, B, answers any questions you may have had, and C, doesn't make you regret asking said <laughs> questions. Loving the pod. Big love, Freddie from Freddie and the Fabs, the official English correspondent for the Lyrics for Lunch podcast. Thank you so much. But not to be outdone. Lady Loon writes in, this is Victoria, right? Says, hey guys. So dogging is spying on couples having sex in their cars or other public places. <laughs> but the people say but the people spying are welcome by said couple. I think the best way to understand it from a dogger's perspective is a, a Facebook uh, a Facebook video that she that she attached called Ladhood colon accidentally meeting doggers from BBC three. How many of you is there? Uh four. Four? Mm. quite a lot (laughs) (laughs) but we've taken on more than that before we had um, nine blokes at once a couple of months ago Stefan so how do you want us to start Um, well how do you usually start I would usually start by sucking Stefan off I would sometimes suck the balls but that can make him come too quick. You mean during race you do that? Yes, you're not about racing. What about it? Dogging. Are you are you on about dogging? Yeah. What do you think I were on about racing? In addition to that, we also have some more feedback. Weirdly, dancing in the moonlight. One of our one of our most feedbacked episodes. <laughs> At Amanda Kremers on Twitter says, Dancing in the Moonlight isn't Van Morrison? Well, shit. I'm already learning things over here. And uh, our good friend Matt from the Pick a Disc podcast says, Listening to the latest lyrics for lunch, that Top Loader cover is so popular in the UK that I had no idea it was a bloody cover until this episode. Genuinely thought it was a Top Loader original. This may be the episode of the podcast that has blown my mind the most. (laughs) Of all the episodes. Of all the episodes. Of it's all the gym top joints. Top loader that did it. Freddie from Freddie and the Fabs also just writes underneath, same. <laughs> and lastly, but not leastly, from Apple Podcasts, we have a review from something underscore clever dash ish saying, interesting and fun. I now spend my Saturday mornings cooking breakfast and listening to the hosts break down and sometimes destroy the hits of my youth. (laughs) It's the right balance of interesting and light for a relaxing weekend listen. I recommend. So thank you very much. And on that note, I'm really sorry to let you know that this episode contains details of physical and sexual abuse that some listeners may find triggering. Okay. All right. So. All right. (laughs) Stars are blind. Stars Are Blind was the first single from Hotel Eras turned reality TV star turned business magnate Paris Hilton. And it served as the lead single from her debut eponymous album Paris, which was released on June 5th, 2006 by Warner Brother Records. It was released after Paris had done three seasons of The Simple Life with Nicole Richie. Aviv, what is The Simple Life? The Simple Life was a reality show where Hotel Eras, Paris Hilton, and music heiress, Nicole Richie, daughter of Lionel Richie. Adopted daughter. Very weird story for another really? day. Really? I thought that she was... She got adopted when she was like nine or something rando. What? Because her parents were like, he was rich and he was our friend and we thought she'd have a better life with him. But what? do not quote me on this. This is my memory, but we'll do, we'll, we'll fact check and come back to this. What the fuck? 
Yeah. I'm already, we've already hit the fucking hyperdrive on this one. <laughs> I thought Nicole was actually his kid. No, 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 no. Okay. So, yeah. Weird, Adopt, weird story this there. Is, this is my adopted daughter, Marco Tenenbaum. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so, so hotel heiress Paris Hilton and adopted music heiress Nicole Richie. Basically, the premise of the show was they are bougie, effete women who have never worked a hard day in their life and they go to like a farm and have to like learn how to milk cows and the the joke is always that they give up on the challenge almost immediately and like make snarky comments at at yokels and so it made like them look bad as well as like really was condescending toward like quote-unquote regular americans it was a great show all around totally we're back <laughs> Tell your grandsons we're in town. We're single and we're here for five weeks. Loves it. Thirty days. No money. No luxury. And no clue. Loves it. Will they make it? I hope you all like the dinner I ironed. Oh my god! <laughs> That's hot. They're kind of a screw up, you know it? Please, no problem. This simple life. <laughs> That is absolutely correct. That was a wonderful reenactment of The Simple Life. Thank you, Aviv. <laughs> You're welcome. Simple Life aired from December 2nd, 2003 to August 5th, 2007, and it was allegedly inspired by Green Acres. <laughs> I mean, the poster is, is Green Acres, <laughs> which is also American Gothic. True. And the Green Acres was a sitcom about a New York society couple who moved to a farm. Starring Zsa so Zsa Gabor. Yes. Yes. I used to watch Green Acres. So, in, and wasn't there a Hilton that was married to Zsa Gabor? Was there? Look this up while I talk. <laughs> okay. Instead, here we get Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie comedically attempting manual low-paying jobs like cleaning, farm work, serving meals in fast food restaurants, working as camp counselors, which will be interesting later. Conrad Hilton, who is uh, Paris's grandfather. grandfather, was married to Zsa, Zsa Gabor. <laughs> <laughs> great i love that so this is that but that's like that makes it kind of more fun and more tongue-in-cheek in a way that we didn't actually get at the time yeah that's true i i don't think that paris i know nicole richie wasn't the first choice oh really yeah there were multiple paris was the first to sign on and oh they wanted paris and her sister nikki, nikki. yeah yeah and nikki, and was nikki not didn't want to do it yeah didn't want to be in the spotlight so then there was, uh, it was offered to a few other people and it landed on Nicole Richie. So it's 2006. Paris had three seasons of Simple Life under her belt. Saddam Hussein was sentenced to death and executed. <laughs> okay. North Korea Great. launched its first nuclear test, making it a nuclear power. So setting the scene. <laughs> yep. Steve Irwin was killed by a stingray. And Dick Cheney accidentally shot his hunting companion, Harry Whittington, during a quail hunt. Wow. <laughs> Just some highlights. So I was a year out from graduating college and straddling the line between this horrific thing we call adulthood and the take it for granted kind of freedom that only comes with youth. The, I'm, I'm, this is starting to scare me about where <laughs> this is going, but okay. <laughs> No, 
I love this song and I feel like it'll always be a tether to like that freedom feeling of driving around going nowhere with my best friends, yeah. like loaded in the back of my car, windows down, drinking iced coffee. 2006 was a really interesting time. I saw someone on TikTok say, make this claim that like no culture happened in 2006. Like if you can, if you can think of something that happened in the 2000s, he guaranteed it wouldn't have happened in 2006. So thank you for listing all the things that did happen in 2006. Yeah, Italy won the World Cup. Didn't even tell you that. (laughs) Friend of the show, Matt Reuter, went to the World Cup, blew a Vuvuzela. In 2006? I think so. And he gave head to someone? No, a Vuvuzela. (laughs) One of those... No idea. Just right over my head. I thought you said he blew someone. He did. He blew a Vuvuzela. Oh, like a horn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a specific <laughs> horn that... L- oh, nope. You know what? That was 2010. Hmm. Never mind. <laughs> Matt is four years away from giving head to a South African. Great. Um, okay, so do you have any uh, relationship with the song that you would like to share? Um, I remember it coming out and I remember it, I immediately writing it off because I wrote everything that Paris Hilton did off. I was like, I have like unwittingly played into the game of like hating Paris Hilton. Sure. Because of what she represented. I was a victim of, you know, the culture's misogyny and yeah. And then I heard it again, again for the first time or if so to speak in the movie Promising Young Woman. I was like, oh, this song rules. That was like your next time hearing it? Cool. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, yeah, I heard it when it came out a couple times, and I was like, this sucks. I loved it when it came out. And I remember being like surprised that it's Paris Hilton, because again, I've also just been a hater of reality TV. I, I even tried to watch uh, Paris in Love, which is her newer reality show that's on peacock about uh her oh, where she's like engagement and marriage or whatever no yeah. she's like engaged to be married and then i guess it goes up to her marriage um but she's like still playing the character a little less dumb but it's just really annoying and uh but so all reality tv to me is annoying i've seen like one episode of the kardashians because yeah. i was at someone's house who's watching it you know oh yeah me too meanwhile nicole richie has done a lot to break out of that persona such as she she was the star of the show great news the tina fey show which was she's very funny in. she's like done she's like done quote-unquote legitimate acting performances and kind of i think uh, distanced herself a little bit from that persona or that time in her life in a way that i don't think paris has as much but i don't know publicly publicly yes um because Behind the scenes, she's built like a multi-million dollar brand and is about to become a billionaire, but um, or make a billion dollars. Yeah, I always love this song. It's a perfect combination of sexy and sweet. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Remember in our like second episode where you're like, perfect combination. That's a reference to Crazy Stupid Love, a movie yeah. that eight people saw. No, it was. That person it... wrote me and said I was correct. Really? Yes. No. Yes. You fucking liar. Swear to God. Anywho, I will try and dig that up for you. Let's take a listen and watch the video. Okay, great. Already. What? What's wrong? I'm just already. This is like amazing. (laughs) 
Okay, so this doesn't make this already doesn't make sense unless it's like an artistic choice, which is the fact that they're on the beach but shooting her modeling in front of a white backdrop. Right. right. So it's like the the fake versus the real. You know, I think I was also turned off by the reggae beat. Yeah, were you? Yeah, it didn't it didn't do it for me. Now it's well, I'm fine. She's just like humping a guy who's humping her. Yeah, this feels a, a little like a sequel to the Genie in a Bottle video or something. Yeah, sure. Which is might be actually a good episode for us to do. Sure. isn't amazing that's not bad it's just like not spectacular sure i'm just trying to think of like why we all hated this so much i fucking loved it we as a culture (laughs) right because wasn't this like universally panned no oh people liked it yeah oh shit okay then i'm trying to figure out why i didn't like it It's a little earnest for her brand. Yeah. Maybe that's the thing, right? Like, she was very quick to snipe and to be purposely ironic. And then this seems extremely earnest. Even though now people are throwing knives at her. (laughs) I wonder what that could symbolize. Sure, right. joke about perfect combination of sexy and sweet I do stand by that comment because like it's flirty it's fun but it's also like maybe I'm perfect for you and I feel like at the time that it came out especially for me and my friends we're like about to graduate college we're like you know in our fantasy worlds where we're like we're gonna marry our college sweethearts we're gonna get our dream jobs and we're gonna have hot sex on the beach listeners who (laughs) don't seem to remember 
2006, we still believed the things were possible. <laughs> yeah. There was still like the, all the optimism was not just drained out of us by the intervening 15, 16 years. Yeah, it's cool. It's cute. I think it fits in. I think, you know, maybe it came out like five years too late. Like if this came out in 2001 or even in the late 90s, maybe it would be more of a classic like yeah. in this, in the same vein as like a Britney Spears or something. Sure. We've talked about this a bit, but any final thoughts on the video? The video is really well made. A, a little earnest for her brand, but like well shot, well conceived. I think it has like an underlying message of like the idea of Par- like the idea of who Paris Hilton is versus the fact that she's like maybe looking for auth- something authentic or I don't know. I mean, I might just be reading into it. Well, Paris told Bustle that with every single music video I've done, I'm there making the mood boards, basically just coming up with the whole concept and I'm involved like 100%. With this, it, it was very sexy. I was really inspired by George Michael's A Different Corner video, the black and white one. We just mm-hmm. had a lot of really iconic photos up on the mood board like Madonna pictures. It's weird that it's weird that Chris I, the Chris Isaac's Wicked Game video, which is like black and white and people rolling around on the beach and super sexy, like doesn't get mentioned (laughs) basically she never saw it or maybe she doesn't want to draw the comparison so at the end of that video we saw her like take the keys and drive away and so Mm -hmm. that read so in this bustle article they're like oh like there's two versions in one you actually steal your lover's car like why make a second version and she was like oh because they thought that the first one was too sexy so we had to make one like for the US that was just like a little more of a narrative and use the original one the more sexed up one as the UK version. So what we watched was the US version. That's what I would be led to believe based on that she does take the car at the end. However, right. I did not feel there was a narrative and I could not find the other version online. I think the narrative is loose. And I did not feel like it was less sexed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think that there is something to what you're saying about her taking the lover's car cuz also the so like throughout the video you're seeing the guy the lover taking pictures of her over and over and over again they're looking for the perfect whatever sure um, true. and then the pictures that you see at the end the only pictures that you see at the end are the ones that she has taken of him right right so she's taking control she's taking like authorship of the whatever um which i think is part is like that is a narrative to me yes great thanks for <laughs> yes great. thanks for backing me up <laughs> The song was written by Lady Gaga and Sia collaborator Fernando Garibay. Right. So not Lady Gaga and Sia. No, no, no. Mm. Um, And then Shepard Solomon and Ralph McCarthy were also co-writers. And it was produced by Fernando Garibay with additional production by Solomon. Solomon. Shepard Solomon. Is he the guy? The ex-boyfriend? Yeah. No, that's someone else, Solomon. Okay. <laughs> Got scared. Um, Jennifer. We are going to talk about that, right? Of course. Okay, just making sure. Uh, so Jennifer Carr was the vocal arranger and background vocalist for the song. And Stars Are Blind, as you mentioned, you didn't really like the reggae fusion aspect, right? Yeah, at least at the time. So there's a Reggaetron remix referred to as the Looney, L-U-N-Y, Tunes remix, which features the Puerto Rican duo Wissen and Yandel. 
What? <laughs> and it was released in Latin America. It received heavy airplay and achieved club success in countries like Colombia, Ecuador, Chile, and Venezuela. Would you like to take a quick little listen? Because you're definitely not going to like this one. Great. <laughs> Please, yes. This just that sounds like playing two songs at the same time. I don't like this, but maybe not for the reason that you think I don't like it. Okay, why don't you like it? Because it doesn't fit together. It's like not, it doesn't, like I think that the the music is fine, but it's like absolutely not the same chord progression as it's what like, she's singing dun, dun. to. <laughs> it's weird. It's just like, it's like barely fits together. Right. Well, the regular Stars Are Blind peaked at number 18 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 mm-hmm. and saw very strong digital sales. It topped the Billboard Dance Club songs chart and worldwide it topped charts in Hungary, Scotland, Slovakia, reached the top 10 in Australia, Canada, Venezuela, and more than 10 European countries. Great. Here's Paris talking to Billboard in 2013 about the first time she heard Stars Are Blind. Stars Are Blind was one of my favorite songs I ever recorded. I was so excited the first time I was in the car just driving, I'd kiss FM on, and all of a sudden it started coming on the radio, and I was just so happy. I was driving in Malibu, I just remember that, I'll never forget it, and just singing along and driving in my convertible down the road, and just made me so happy and proud, and then it was playing on the radio all the time, so it was really exciting, and shooting the music video was so much fun, and I had the best time doing it, and was so proud when it came out, and everyone loved it so much. And that was a lot of fun. And I love that Stars Are Blind is still an iconic song. It's timeless and people still love it. So that makes it, me really is happy. It an iconic song? Is it timeless? <laughs> Some would think so, but clearly you don't. I mean, I you know, I don't think it I think it's it's a fine song, but I don't know if it's like stood the test of time. <laughs> yeah, nobody remembered it until Promising Young until Woman. Until the movie until the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, good for her. I mean, like I'm sure she I'm sure her royalty checks say otherwise, right? Uh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. Uh so the week the album Paris was released, Banksy replaced five hundred copies of the album across forty eight UK record stores with an alternate remix version that was created with Danger Mouse. And they gave the songs new titles like Why Am I Famous? What have I done? What am I for? <laughs> And they changed the cover artwork and booklet with pictures of Hilton topless and like other digs, which that's kind of fucked up. Yeah, so you can look. Yeah, so it says every time someone asks me how I am, I hesitate for a little too long. And then scroll down, and you can see like what was inside the booklet. Yeah, race to the bottom of the pile. Thou shalt not worship false icons. Ninety percent of. 
yeah, ninety percent of it's not her naked though, because it's it's put on it's another fake. body. It's on a, it's, it's on her like head a mannequin. on a topless body. No, it's a mannequin with her head on it. Yes, 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 but it's not a real human being's body. I mean, the mannequin is better than an actual picture of her topless. Right, right, right. Um, can we listen to Stars Are Blind? It's not on there. Oh, it's a bummer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I like kind of understand their point of like, wow, someone's famous for the sake of the fact that they're famous. Like, that sucks, but okay. It's kind of cool. The Danger Mouse stuff is cool. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So Ernest Baker from Complex listed the song as one of the 50 awesome guilty pleasure songs we're ashamed to like, but not really. And stated that the song was like a tropical escape from her tabloid headline persona. So her being Paris. Instead, you had what seemed like sincere emotions from the socialite incorporated into a ridiculously well-written record, a ridiculously well-written record over spot on production. Stars Are Blind was a flash in the pan, a fluke, but an incredible one. We'll never get something like this from Paris Hilton again. He finished saying that this was Hilton's greatest contribution to society, the song. Weird. I, from being like an alive person, thought that this was like panned. Like that everyone hated it. Maybe that, maybe I'm thinking of the album that everyone hated the album, but like, maybe I like truly have never heard another song on the album. And yeah, that's true. <laughs> true. <laughs> um, this is from nylon writer Patrick McDermott about the first time he heard Stars Are Blind. I don't remember where we were going, only that it was warm outside, summer, so close we could practically feel it, like the underground vibrations of an Amtrak train barreling toward a station. I was freshly 16, and though I'd secured a learner's permit and a part-time job bagging groceries at a local supermarket, I still relied on my sister to shuttle me around, often tagging along on inane errands just to get out of the house for a couple of hours. When Stars Are Blind came on the radio, my sister and her friends screamed. One of them reached down to crank the volume. I can't remember my own knee-jerk reaction to the song's opening groove, which, I realize now, recalls the mid-tempo intro of Straight to Hell by The Clash. What? The combat rock single that M.I.A. iconically sampled a couple summers later. For for Paper Planes, yeah. Um, I probably slouched in my seat in pantomime disinterest, committed to a pre-poptimist belief that anything overproduced was inherently embarrassing. Weirdly, though, it was this hyper-fabricated quality that eventually won me over. That day in the car, and on every subsequent listen over the past decade and a half, of which there have been many. Sung in Paris's thin register, pitch corrected, right up to the edge of anonymity, the lyrics of Stars Are Blind urge a crush to act on their romantic impulses, even if it means going against what is predestined by the cosmos. So wait, let me stop you there just for a second. Okay. Because pitch corrected to the edge of anonymity is like, that was written in, what year is is this article from? This nylon article? Yeah. 2021. So I take issue with the, I mean, 2021 is now. I take issue with the idea that this is pitch corrected to the edge of anonymity. It's super like, not. It's not. And like, listen to fucking any top 40 now yeah. is like way worse than this. I think he's overcompensating for liking it. So like trying to find any little neg. Yeah, yeah. He's like, even though it's, even though the gods are crazy, you know. <laughs> right. Speaking of that, yes. Uh... The lyrics of Stars Are Blind urge a crush to act on their romantic impulses, even if it means going against what is predestined by the cosmos. 
even though the gods are crazy, even though the stars are blind. I thought it was even if the stars are blind. I don't know. If you show me real love, baby, I'll show you mine. This flirty and vaguely libertarian narrative is paired with a swaying melody. Libertarian? That sounds more or less identical to Kingston Town by UB40, the popular late 80s cover of the Lord Creator original from 1970. A plagiarism lawsuit filed by UB40's label, Sparta Florida Music Group, was apparently settled out of court in 2009. That is true. Well, we gotta hear it now. That is true. Okay, so we think that this sounds like this UB40 song? Uh, yes, and so did UB40. Well, UB40 is like saying, has said, like, we weren't behind the lawsuit. It was our label. Sure. I only know a couple of UB40 songs, Red Red Wine and... I can't help falling in love whoa, with you. Whoa, whoa. You're going to lose your mind when you hear this. Okay. Oh, okay. Here we go. Kings- Kingston Town. Already. <laughs> this is the, just, this is just the song. <laughs> right? Holy shit. Deva 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 ba. If you show me love, baby, I'll show you mine. <laughs> yeah, this is bad. This is worse than anything I've ever stolen. Maybe. The funny thing is, like, Paris didn't write the song. The song was brought to her. So. Yeah, I don't. Th- I mean, the 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 entity that is Paris Hilton stole this, but it's not Paris herself. You think fucking she knows UB40? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that was fun. Wow. That's a that's a a big that's a whopper. Right. Okay. Back to Nylon and McDermott. The finished product sounded audaciously carefree, so fundamentally unconcerned with coming across as smart or original that it wound up being both. It's part sweat slick summer banger. That's true. (laughs) It's part sweat-slicked summer banger, part uncanny art object, a plastic wrap descendant of Aqua's Barbie Girl, an accidental ancestor to the subversive gloss of the PC music catalog. No, stop it. I love, re- I love reading these douchey articles. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay for songs to be fine. Like, like, we're allowed to just like a mediocre song because it's fun. We do not need to fucking be like, the true genius of Paris Hilton's Stars Are Blind is how bad it is. No, it's just like a fine, okay, catchy song. That's, that's it. So I grew up wanting to be, I always wanted to be a journalist and a writer, but then of course, like most people, not most, but most people uh, that would have a music podcast, you know, had the dream of like working for Rolling Stone and, Mm -hmm. you know, we love Almost Famous. Uh, And I actually had a little stint where I ran a music, uh, a radio station website. I got to interview a lot of musicians, go to a lot of shows. I I wrote uh, reviews for a separate music website. Uh, about like you know just new albums coming out and i fucking hated it because like i couldn't be like pompous and destroy someone else's art and i just felt like yeah i just felt like uh so much music commentary is just pure douchery yes for correct (laughs) 
So I quickly got myself out of there, but it's more fun what we do now because we get to dig into the stories and read these douchey journalists. And, we, and, and, <laughs> and I had mentioned this on a, on a previous episode, like we don't have the pressure to talk about stories to find like the good great brilliant thing to say about every song like some songs just suck some artists just suck the end and we can and we can be honest about that right you're right and we don't have to try and be say something profound about every little piece of music that we hear and not every piece of music is trying to say something profound either true which people should try to remember yeah Okay, Fernando, this is this is Big Dermot. Fernando Garibay, who sketched out a demo version with Gwen Stefani in mind to sing it. That's yeah, that makes sense. Was not a, that was just not a full sentence. So sure. Nylon, call me. You need a copy editor. Part of me understands where he was coming from. The no doubt front woman's hypothetical interpretation would have likely landed somewhere between the stoner sass of Sunday morning and the Mm-mm. ultra cinematic romance of cool. What is what is her Sunday morning is not stoner sass, is it? Did Wait, I miss the joke? Which which Sunday morning are we talking? Is there Sunday morning? Oh oh, I thought we were talking about the Maroon Five song Sunday. Ba 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 Sunday morning. I never want to leave. Which Sunday morning are we talking about? Well, since we're talking about Gwen Stefani, I assumed. Right. But we there were is like about... a what is there is a Gwen Stefani Sunday song that basically. Morning rain is falling. That's right. Maroon Five. That's Maroon Five. I, but I, there is a Gwen Stefani song that sounds like this, and I think it has a black and white video too. Okay, well, you work on that while I continue reading. Yeah. But because Stefani was prepping for a new baby, Garibay wound up pitching the demo to Paris Hilton's A and R at Warner Brothers, who swiftly locked it down as the polarizing party girl's debut single, the general public's official introduction to Paris Hilton, recording artist. Yeah, but there's like, I, I can hear the Gwen Stefani-ness in Paris's delivery of this. Yeah, That's and like the reggae saying. background, that, that, yeah. that tracks. This, yeah, totally. We're still in McDermott, just one more paragraph of McDermott. Okay, I, I apologize, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going all rogue here. It doesn't surprise me that the finger-picked tune of Taylor Swift's 2019 tearjerker, Soon You'll Get Better, echoes Stars Are Blind, nor that millennial filmmaker Emerald Fennell wrote the song into her Oscar-winning screenplay for Promising Young Woman. The track's cultural footprint is bigger than its early mixed reviews and moderate chart performance might have suggested. Swift's ballad is about her mother's battle with cancer, and so this melodic allusion to Stars Are Blind, whether knowing or entirely subconscious, suggests nostalgia for less fraught times. Mm, that is a stretch, Patrick. Yeah, I don't think I don't <laughs> think that there's that much to this song. <laughs> the promising young woman scene is deceptively joyful, a falling in love montage that develops an unsettling quality in light of a third act twist. That Stars Are Blind is flexible mm. enough to straddle all of these moods is a testament to its particular power, no. to its durability as a no, vessel this is wrong. for both meaning and Stop memory. It. No way. This is this is end scene. <laughs> uh, this first of all, this guy, this this writer is so far up his own ass. <laughs> but like that's not what it is in this movie. Yeah, so let's talk about the movie. Okay. Give us the recap. No spoilers. S- no spoilers. So Carrie Mulligan, great actor, plays a woman who Carrie, I think her name is Cassie. Uh, Cassie. Cass- Cassie. Cassie. And so she this is like one of the earlier reveals in the film, but she lost her best friend in a in a suicide because her friend was 
assault like brutally sexually assaulted in college and um and cassie is trying to get revenge on all the people that basically ignored her and either abused her or ignored her pleas or whatever her and the, sorry her friends please yes yes and uh and this gets complicated when cassie falls in love with a guy that she went to college with and maybe you know some wrench gets thrown into her plan that she doesn't want to like be a revenge machine anymore and that person is played by bo burnham extremely tall bo burnham (laughs) and they are going like as a part of their falling in love montage they're they go to like a convenience store like a gas station convenience store and stars are blind is oh it's a pharmacy yeah we're gonna watch it oh great and he just sings it because he's being goofy Okay, so let's watch it. Strip to the pharmacy together. Yeah. Big step. I'm sorry. Are you singing Paris Hilton? What? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's fine. So, yeah, so they're dancing, they're eating chips, well, they're grabbing chip bags. He's being a goofball. They're falling in love. Yeah, and so I have an entirely different reading of this scene than whatever that guy wrote in this article. What did he write about this? He he said that it's like bal- perfectly balances the the morose undertones and the creeping dread and the whatever else of the of the movie, right? Okay, so what's your read? I think that this is her way out. That he represents the idea that she might be able to walk away from this plan that she has, this revenge plan that she has. And this song is light and he represents the idea that maybe some lightness exists in the world still and that she can follow that instead of doing her vengeance. And not to spoil the rest of the movie, but the, that question is answered later as to whether or not there is any lightness left in the world. All right. Well, this is from Entertainment Weekly. Between the R.I.P. Rape- they just they just announced that they were going to stop printing. Really sad. Yeah. Between the rape revenge thrillers, frank meditation on female rage emerges a romantic relationship that speaks to the unexpected vibrance of love that can, on the surface, shine through darkness. As her fearer during a plot to avenge the sexual assault of a former classmate subsides, ex-medical student Cassie, Carrie Mulligan, falls for an old acquaintance, Ryan, Bo Burnham, and their attraction peaks in a spontaneous, neon-lit dance to the Hilton Classic inside a drugstore. The whole thing feels both whimsical and unsettling at the same time. It's adorable absurdity, chip bags exploding like fireworks, hips shimmy past multivitamins on the shelves, the dull pharmacy sign above the counter bathes the couple in candy light, lulls viewers and Cassie into a sense of short-lived comfort amid the chaos of her quest for retribution, thanks in part to writer-director Emerald Fennell's knack for tonal juxtaposition. I also find it a little bit unbelievable that Emerald Fennell wrote it I can actually look it up because I have the script. 
Because you're not supposed to do that. Right. I know. It's against the rules. Okay. All I wrote was, Fennel wrote the song into the script, which as we've talked about in past episodes, specifically Tiny Dancer, is a risky move. So what she did was she wrote a letter to Paris Hilton. Oh. Correct. I, I have some bad news. What? I have the script in front of me. This scene is not in the script at all. Not only is the song not in the script, the scene is not in the script. Well, she talks about, and the music, whatever person, talks about how they, since it was written to the script, they had to beg had Paris to beg. for the rights. So, so real quick, th- uh, probably both things are true because the version that I have is the one that w- came in sixth on the blacklist in 2018. And so that may Tell have people been what the blacklist is. The blacklist is a list of best unproduced scripts of the year or most liked unproduced scripts of the year. And, you know, this was a place where like the social network and Jojo rabbit and basically the scripts that are great that haven't been bought up yet. They get kind of passed around Hollywood. They wind up on the blacklist. And uh, so this, can you submit to the blacklist? You can, but that's not how you get on. So there's like a blacklist website where you can like pay money for reviews or whatever, but that's not how you wind up, wind up on the blacklist. It like every other award is like, largely political so your agent or manager would submit you for the blacklist um these days but yeah um looking through the script right now i did a search for paris and hilton and pharmacy and chips and nothing has come up what about stars are blind stars are blind nope so likely very likely Emerald Fennel wrote this script kind of following the rules of screenwriting. And then when it got bought and was looking like it was about to get made, that's when they wrote the scene and started to beg Paris Hilton to, to allow the song in the movie. Okay. Send me the screenplay. Haven't read a good one in a while. Okay. So it's uh, good. It's on the blacklist. Fennel told Entertainment Weekly, it's one of my favorite songs. I needed a song for this movie that, if a boy that you liked knew every word to, you'd be incredibly impressed, and you'd know he had good taste. It's a brilliant song. It's one of my ultimate bops. I guess I wasn't so interested in someone who knew the whole Rolling Stones catalog. It's like, good for you. Of course you do. So she told a similar story to HuffPost. For me, it was just, what song, if somebody knew every word to, would you fall more in love with them? What's the song that you'd be like, ugh, you know every lyric to that? Okay, your marriage material. So basically, I was right. (laughs) I think in another movie, it might have been like, you know that indie deep cut of that band that only existed in the 70s? Well, who cares about that? Who cares about the Velvet Underground? I want to know who knows every line of Stars Are Blind. So you're saying you're correct. Yeah, I'm saying that that it that the the thing that this got this what is this writer's name? Oh, McDermott. Yeah, the thing that he's saying about the song being at the nexus of the darkness of the of the impending doom of the screen, like that's all bullshit. He's making stuff up. And clearly Emerald Fennel agrees with me cuz she says it's about them falling in love. Right. And I remember watching this movie and like during, when this scene was happening, just like just smiling so hard, but also being like, please don't let him be bad. Please yes. don't let him be bad. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so maybe that's what he's talking about with the darkness is like it gives you this angst of like, I hope that they don't take this guy away from me, too. But <laughs> maybe very get outy in that sense. Okay, so Fennel told The Hollywood Reporter it was a matter of begging Paris to let us have it before shooting. 
Uh, music supervisor Susan Jacobs estimated that the rights to Stars Are Blind totaled almost half of her music budget, but <laughs> said it was worth it. Sure. And to quote HuffPost, it's the centerpiece of a movie that starts dark, turns bright, then careens back towards darkness. So I tried to find the letter, but I could not. The letter that she sent to Paris? Yeah. Yeah. Though the scene is cheerful on the surface, Fennel calls the bright dressings a facade at all times for Cassie's trauma. And the Stars Are Blind scene is no different, wrote Entertainment Weekly. The more you want to hide, this is quote Fennel, the more you want to hide, the more normal you appear. When the women I know are in dire circumstances, they tend to put on more lipstick because they don't want any questions asked. And so, and so the implication is that Stars Are Blind is the lipstick? Like it's the sunniness that, yes. that the film is trying to cover over. Mm, okay. I still don't read it that way, but I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Interestingly, this is basically the story of Paris Hilton. Mm. Segway. Fernando Garibay told MTV News that the world just didn't understand Paris in the early 2000s. Quote, this is a woman who was very misunderstood by the public at that time. A time when there wasn't as much transparency into an artist's life as there is now, he said. People only saw what they saw on TV. Therefore, the mission operative for Hilton's first record was to create a body of music that resonated with who she really is. I disagree with that, too. The idea that, so say the transparency thing again. This is a woman who was very misunderstood by the public at the time, a time when there wasn't as much transparency into an artist's life as there is now. People only saw what they saw on TV, like the Simple Life persona. But the whole thing about Paris, the whole reason why she is famous in the first place is because she offered that transparency into her life. She had no product that she was selling. She had no movie that she was in. The only reason that she got famous in the first place was because of that transparency. And granted, we are public persona, public figures are much more transparent now, but that's largely because of the things that she was doing and making a traditional piece of media like a song or like acting in a movie or whatever is not being more transparent it's being less transparent well i think what we're going to realize throughout the rest of this episode is that the character that paris hilton created and presented to the world through the simple life was not a transparent lens into who she really is yeah so so let me rephrase it was the illusion of transparency right we we tuned in for the the Paris Hilton train wreck show, assuming maybe that it was who she actually was, even though it was sure. And I agree with you that when he's saying there wasn't as much transparency into an artist's life as there is now, I don't see a ton of transparency into artist's life. You know, I do see more vulnerability, so mm-hmm. maybe that's what he means. And everyone's got to have like their social media where they like are accessible at all times. But once again, like Paris is the is patient zero of all that, right? Whether she liked it, whether she wanted to be or not. Oh, totally. And people call her the original influencer, and she like agrees right. to that. And she like said in uh, her documentary that came out last year called "This Is Paris" that she sees like young girls, like teen and tween girls, taking selfies with filters, and she feels so sad and then the interviewer was like well do you feel responsible for that like people say like you invented the selfie and like do you feel any responsibility for this and she was like yeah i do yeah i mean it's a it's a frankenstein's monster scenario and it's not her fault because she was a young woman who was manipulated by the system but like she's the poster child for everything that old dudes shake their fist at now about internet culture 
So the same year The Simple Life aired, Paris's ex-boyfriend, poker player Rick Solomon, mm-hmm. leaked a sex tape of the two of them online. Okay. So. So. The sex tape. So let's call that what it is, revenge porn. Yes. And there was also a push to rationalize this revenge porn by saying that Paris signed off on it as a way to become famous or more famous. Which she says she did not. Right. Immediately she's cast in the public eye as a villain instead of a victim, even though she's 19. And do you remember how old Solomon was? I want to say like 29. 33. Oh, no! (laughs) And a year after he leaked it online, he started distributing it through Red Light District Video, an adult film company, under the title One Night in Paris. Yes. I I know this video as One Night in Paris, which yes, is people do. kind of kind of funny objectively, like it's a good play on words, but also disgusting. So she never consented to the release of the film. She never received any money from the film. In 2018, in the 2018 documentary The American Meme, she said, "I felt like everyone on the street was laughing at me. I literally could not walk down the street because I felt like every single person had watched it and seen me naked and was talking behind my back. It was like being raped. It felt like I'd lost part of my soul and then been talked about in such cruel and mean ways. I literally wanted to die at some points." Yep. So, yeah, the public reaction was super cruel, to say the least. Here's fucking boomer David Letterman making fun of a 19-year-old victim of sex abuse. Yeah, he uh, did that a lot. Sex video showing Paris and her ex was released to media outlets and is circulating on the Internet. All of this without her consent. These uh, sex videotapes are all over the Internet. How many of you have seen them? I've seen them. I've seen them. Uh, she, I, I don't know. She seems like a very personable young woman. <laughs> That was Fuck you, David a private Lennon. moment with a teenage girl not in her right headspace, but everyone was watching it and laughing like it's something funny. That poor family. To have your daughter do a porno film in a Marriott hotel. I mean, it's... I mean, that's, once again... I think like that the Joan Rivers joke is objectively funny. It's terrible. So, but this is the thing: like things can be funny, but also inappropriate. Like, like you are sacrificing. You're punching down, right? You're sacrificing the basically the sanity of a 19 year old girl for a joke. And there are people who will defend it because as long as it's funny, it's okay. Right. And I don't necessarily I don't agree with that, but I'm saying like I can see the rationalization of, well, the joke is funny, so why not tell it? And the answer is because there's a real person who is having like a mental breakdown on the other end of that joke. Like a teenager. A teenager. And the question is, are you actually punching down? She's so rich. She's so powerful. She has this platform, blah, blah, blah. She's still a 19 year old girl. Very little agency of her own. Correct. Um, also, she's quoted in Paris Hilton, a biography, saying, I don't remember filming it in the first place. So, Whoa, that. that's really bad. Yeah. That's so fucking bad. But, but, but both the Letterman joke and the Joan Rivers joke cast her as the person who is making the movie, right? She is the, she's calling action and cut. 
right? It's her movie as opposed to she being the unwitting or unwilling or unknowing participant of this this video. And I th- hopefully, I mean, we there was another episode, uh, maybe it was Olivia Rodrigo, where I we brought up like um, like the Britney in Paris, like Girls Gone Wild, mm-hmm. like news we cover, and how these like these women were portrayed uh instead of nurtured and uh i feel like it's changed a little bit you know i think if this video came out now you like that it would be there would be a little bit more clarity about the fact that she was a victim yeah i mean maybe but emily radikowski even though blurred lines was still uh, 10 years ago emily radikowski still didn't feel comfortable saying hey i was sexually assaulted on the set of blurred lines yeah. So it's, I think it's getting better just like extremely slowly. Yeah. I don't know if a celebrity sex tape would happen in the same fashion these days, even though the internet is way more pervasive. Everyone well, like when was the fappening? 2013, 14. I mean, even that was just, you know. Truly revenge point. If you didn't Truly want your up. pictures naked on the internet, why'd you take yeah. them in the first place? Exactly. I don't know, man, because I have a butt. Seriously. Okay. Well, and, okay. And yeah, but Mary Elizabeth Winstead had a great response to that of of all of the like people who spoke out against what happened with so the fappening for those of you who don't know there was like a massive leak of like people's iclouds account and a lot of celebrities naked pictures got leaked to the internet. M- most like the big big tip of the spear was like jennifer lawrence but mary elizabeth winstead took to instagram and said hey congratulations you have seen a picture that i sent to my husband that was supposed to be like a moment of love between us and and now it's for everyone and you've taken that away from me i hope you're happy yeah pretty bad but we but we dehumanize celebrities um michael hobbs on um you're wrong about when he hosted you're wrong about used to say being a celebrity is like being in prison right we don't view them as human because they're in a zoo for us to watch yeah Yeah. well i'm gonna read from a 2016 people article right now before there were the kardashians the housewives and social media stars there was paris hilton the celebutant famous for being famous and a staple at every club opening worldwide. But by the mid-2000s, her life had become the stuff of a Snapchat nightmare, an unauthorized sex tape, a failed engagement, notorious fallings out with friends Nicole Richie and Kim Kardashian, and even the cancellation of her reality show The Simple Life in 2007. It wasn't surprising, therefore, when Hilton seemingly retreated from the spotlight. But today... Hilton has created a surprising and lucrative second act. She has launched a DJ career, built up the success of her Paris Hilton retail stores overseas, and maintains a booming celebrity fragrance business. I'm just a different person now than I was back then, says Hilton. Because everyone's different from when they're 19. <laughs> yeah, and at this time she was 35, so she's 40 now. Uh, okay, says so Hilton. I know. Who divides her time between LA, Spain, and New York City. I feel like I'm finally an adult. I've been through a lot, and I've grown up a lot. Now, instead of club hopping, Hilton commands the crowds on the dance floor. I used to get paid to show up at clubs and was always in the DJ booth telling them what to play, she says. The owner suggested I try it, meaning DJing. Hilton took it seriously, training for six months, and notes that music comes naturally to her. I've been playing violin and piano my whole life. My mom used to make Nikki and me and Nicole Richie have recitals for the moms. 
So by 2014, Paris was the highest paid female DJ in the world, earning $1 million per appearance. That's still part, partly her name. But, but, but think about this idea that when we were kids, our moms used to make me and Nikki and, and Nicole Richie perform. Like, I've always been in this little toy box for people to look at. Yeah. And you can see a lot more of that if you watch her documentary, This yeah. is Paris, which I... It shows a totally, obviously, different side and a re- and much more real person. Like, you don't get the the voice that she does. Like, she mm-hmm. talks in her regular voice. Uh, it's super the, interesting. She gave us vocal fry, too. That's <laughs> She's to blame for that. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to show you two little clips of Paris DJing. The first one is at 2019's Tomorrowland Festival in Belgium, where you'll see there's Huge a Huge festival. 400,000, Yeah, least. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still like a level of her persona that she's embracing, right? The diamond encrusted headphones and glasses and. Good for her. Are we going to talk about the Kim tape at all? Oh, how it like allegedly that's why Kim released a tape to yes, get famous. Exactly. The Kim Kim was so we'll just talk about it right now. Kim was Paris's closet organizer, like her assistant or whatever. And allegedly Chris Jenner got the idea to make her daughter and the rest of their family famous the same way that Paris got famous, which is not actually how Paris got famous. Um, through a sex tape. Yeah. I don't I've heard that. I can't confirm it or I kind of it. believe it. Because that okay. family scares me, but I have no evidence <laughs> other than like vibes. So this is her DJing a set from her home during the pandemic. Quarantine, great. It's Good a benefit her. Animal Haven. Oh she's yeah, she's like an animal rights. Animal animal yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you to everyone for supporting Animal Whoa. Haven during this difficult time. I'm so honored to be a yeah, part of this Yeah, I do not event. like all these no's. Every dollar raised tonight will go directly <laughs> to Animal Haven's Emergency Action Fund to help animals in need during the pandemic. She's dropped the voice. Please donate and celebrate the animals. This set is dedicated to all of them. Baby, this is what you came for. Lightning So, I mean, this might, be, this might be barking up the wrong tree, but I don't really, like, understand the art or artistry behind DJing. So she seems uh-huh. like competent, I guess. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I feel like DJing is a lot like reading the room and knowing new music and knowing yeah. remixes. Which is or... probably tough when you're alone. <laughs> um, well, Paris told Bustle that she ends every set with Stars Are Blind and gets up on the Fuck DJ booth yeah. and sings it live for everyone. I love that. She also said it's her and her husband's favorite song to make out to. That's aggressive. (laughs) That's a lot. Okay, so as a musician. Yes. Do you like to make out to your songs? There was this one time. (laughs) I was a sophomore in college. Things were happening. There was some music on shuffle on my computer. And I came on shuffle and literally, this was in 2006, so same, same as Paris, and like <laughs> never again. Not even, not, not no music, nothing, because I, it was a, an instant, instant mood killer. So now you make out to zero music at all. Mm-hmm. I make out to NPR podcasts. Oh, hot! But the only, only ones that I'm That's on. That's hot. 
That's hot. Trademark Paris Hilton. <laughs> TM Paris Hilton. Uh, okay, so I've mentioned the documentary a few times at this point. It came out last year. It's on YouTube. It's titled This is Paris. You can watch it. You, It's free. Uh, there are commercials, but, you know. Uh, so in the documentary, she opens up about childhood trauma that led to the abusive relationship she suffered in her early life. We love that. We love just ignoring these broken people and making fun of them when they become a circus. Yeah, so... She talks specifically about verbal and physical abuse that she encountered at a boarding school in Utah. Um, All day screaming in her face, bullying, hitting, and strangling. Um, I'm going to let Paris tell us more later about this uh, because I'm not really super comfortable uh, relaying her experience. But uh, just to give a little bit segue in, when she was in her early teens, her family moved to New York City. And this is when she got into the nightlife scene. I think she was like 16 or 15 and 16. So already present, probably presenting as an adult when she wanted to go out clubbing or could present as an adult when she wanted to go out clubbing. And she says she was experiencing bullying at prep school because people knew who she was. And so she said she had a really good fake ID and she felt accepted in the clubs. I just felt like the queen of the night. And that's when I really became Paris. Queen of the night. (laughs) Sounds like she's like a goth. (laughs) <laughs> well, in the, the photos that they showed over this clip was like of her with like kind of like goth makeup and hair, like super like punk. And uh, yeah, definitely you could tell that they show photos of like how her parents dressed her and her sister. You know, it was very much debutante. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she's like high society. People are making fun of her in school. And so she sort of finds her scene in the nightclubs of New York City. Yeah, and you rebel in the 90s. Like, that's how you dressed when you dressed like Angelina Jolie and hackers if you wanted to rebel. Yeah, totally. So her sister Nikki is quoted in the film saying that uh, Paris would be gone all night. Quote, my mom would be up all night calling every single club, threatening them. Jesus. So Paris says that this time she was getting a lot of press attention and she thinks ultimately her family was embarrassed. Her mom says she was afraid, like she felt like moving to New York was the worst decision that she made for her daughter. Okay. And so Paris is sent to boarding school. In fucking Utah. I was just a kid living in New York, going to high school, obviously ditching a lot of class, whatever, but I feel like my parents were scared and they didn't want their reputations to be ruined because page six was writing all these stories so i felt like i was just kind of just sent away to be hidden okay so it wasn't like a normal hey let's take paris to boarding school Mm -hmm. her parents set up what nikki called a capture in the middle of the night so men broke into paris's room while she was sleeping grabbed her she's kicking and screaming she recalled that she was crying out for her parents to help her and she had no idea what was happening. She thought she was getting kidnapped because they're fucking Because Hilton's. she was getting kidnapped. Well, she, right. But like also she's thinking she's getting kidnapped for, for, for ransom. For ransom. Yeah. Like, right. Right. And then she sees her parents are just standing there doing nothing. That is probably the most dramatic thing ever. So Nikki said the next morning at breakfast, her parents acted like everything's fine and Paris oh, wait, didn't so it was to the table. Just, wait, 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 wait. It was just Nikki? I mean, it was just Paris? Yeah. I thought that they both went. No, just Paris got kidnapped. Fuck. 
And like Nikki witnessed it. And in the morning at breakfast, her parents were acting like everything's fine. Because they're fucking Paris wasps. didn't come to the table. Yeah. And they're like, oh, Paris went to boarding school. Jesus Christ. And so she went to a bunch of wilderness and behavioral programs. And she broke out of every one until the last one, which we will get to. Broke out of every one? She like literally would escape because they were super abusive uh, one time she ran away and got caught and was beaten in front of all the other kids by men who are like trying to make an example like this is what happens if you try and leave. Fuck. In her documentary, she says the last boarding school she ever went to was Provo Canyon School in Utah and that it was the worst of the worst. It's unclear to me if she was just like kidnapped for the first wilderness program or if it, the kidnapping was specifically for Provo because a lot of the other girls who went to Provo talk about getting kidnapped. But I know that yeah. the kidnapping thing is a part of many programs. Yeah, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's, it's specific it's, to Provo. It also is. There's a potential that she was kidnapped more than once. True, right. And so something that she also talks about in the documentary is that she has nightmares every single night of being taken. Yep. So from 2011 to 2014, police reports show that there were 56 calls of assault to Provo Canyon and 25 reports of sexual offenses. You're sitting on a chair, staring at a wall all day long, getting yelled at or hit. I felt like a lot of the people who work there got off on torturing children and seeing them naked. Oh, Jesus. They would prescribe everyone all these pills. I didn't know what they were giving me. I would just feel so tired and numb. Some people in that place were just gone. Like the lights are on, no one's home. A lot of people were on suicide watch. And I was so scared that was gonna happen to me. So eventually I found out a way to not take the pills that everyone would tell on everyone, and they found a Kleenex with all of the pills in it. And I got in so much trouble for that. Solitary confinement. Like, something out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They'd make people take their clothes off and go in there, like, for 20 hours. Felt like I was going crazy. Someone was in the other room that was like in a straight jacket, screaming. I was just freezing, I was starving. I was alone, I was scared. My parents were in New York. They didn't know. But I was so angry and so upset, I just, I hated them. I was at Provo for 11 months. And the only thing that saved my sanity was thinking about what I wanted to do and who I wanted to become when I got out of there. I was going to do everything in my power to be so successful that my parents could never control me again. When I turned 18 and got out of Provo, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. I just wanted to be independent, make a name for myself and build my brand. I knew that would be the ultimate freedom. And that's when I met David LaChapelle. 
So David LaChapelle is responsible for that notorious Paris Hilton fashion photo shoot that ran in Vanity Fair. I don't notorious to everyone but me. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I I put it here in the notes for you to see, but let me email it to you. Um, so it's a profile of her. This is before the Simple Life. This is right after she gets out of Provo. Okay, so I got this. This is from Vanity Fair. Yes. So there is a profile of her in Vanity Fair. Top, basically topless, like a mesh tank top, mini, the miniest of mini skirts, aviator sunglasses, kind of riot girl esque. People think I'm just a party girl. Well, I'm not like that. She looks good. Yeah, she looks cool. I'd hang out with her. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So she says she immediately locked away all that she'd experienced in Provo and the image that she would portray to the world. She decided while she was inside and when she got out was that she would not reveal how traumatized she had been. And she said when she was inside, the thing that kept her going was focusing on what she was going to do to build her brand, a business empire, when she got out. She never came public with the abuse that she suffered until she was 40. Jesus Christ. Or 39. Recently, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so on on never speaking out, her, Paris says, I was so grateful to be out of there. I didn't even want to bring it up again. She never even told her parents. It was just something I was ashamed of, and I didn't want to speak of it. So she went on to suffer depression and anxiety and said Why? that the experience also led to abusive relationships. So she was claimed she was physically abused by five boyfriends that she can recall. She says, I accepted it because I thought it was normal. She said this in the film. Yeah, because the person that's supposed to take pr- protect you is abusing you. And so you, your wires get... Fu- oh, my God. I'm so mad. Please continue. I'm, I'm sorry. She said, I wanted love so bad that I was willing to accept being hit or yelled at or screamed or strangled a lot of things. Even the tape. That never would have happened if I never went to Provo. I was so lost and desperate for love that I found the worst possible person. So even even if she knew about the tape and even if she authorized the tape, which was like the rumor at the time, right? Like, yeah, I hate the term playing devil's advocate, but like, let's let's agree with all of the things that all of the people are saying about her that are negative. Like she had she had been out of this fucking hellscape for a year. That's it. She was a child still with no mm-hmm. positive relationships in her entire life like what's that fucking cliche about women who do porn is that they all have like daddy issues well fucking take a look at what the the system has done to her i have such issues with the word daddy issues like we're putting the onus of fucking bad parenting yes. bad fathering on the child yeah, it's all cool. it's all cool, your cool, cool. fault for having dad yeah but you know what i'm the saying female. right no i know um yeah i am fucking furious at this thank you very much Lindsay. I told you it got dark. Um, so Paris met with some of her past classmates from Provo, Provo in the film to finally address some of what had happened to her and to them. And there's a scene where we see the women, they're taking photos with their mouths taped shut, holding up handwritten signs. Then the signs are kind of calling out the abuses that they suffered at the hands of Provo. Okay. This is a project started by one of her classmates called Breaking Code Silence which has now become a nonprofit that represents children and adults who are slash were incarcerated in the troubled teen industry in the United States. Which they used to do on fucking Dr. Phil and fucking Maury. They used to do this on TV. They used to publicly do this. Like, this was a great idea. Right. 
Totally. Like scared straight. Yeah. So the troubled teen industry is a network of privately owned, punitive, often wilderness-based, quote-unquote, therapy programs and residential treatment centers and boarding schools, group homes, boot camps, and faith-based academies. Yeah, they're they're deeply rooted in kind of Christian nationalism and homophobia and... Fucked up shit. Fucked up shit. So click that link. It's like the hashtag breaking code silence. Yeah, this is from Lathrop Ladybrook. Breaking code silence. A movement organized by a network of survivors and activists to raise awareness of the problems of the troubled teen industry and the need for reform. By using many voices to tell our stories, we aim to create change and protect vulnerable youth from abuse. So um, just scroll down. Yeah, there's a bunch of photos of women and a couple of guys with their mouths taped shut. And the, and great for them calling out the actual names of these places that they were at. Cross Creek Manor, Academy at Ivory Ridge. They all have like these innocuous names too. That's like part yeah. of their thing. Discovery Academy. Like what the fuck is that? And three quarters of the way down the... Oh no. One quarter of the way down the page is Paris, Provo Canyon School and school is crossed out. Jesus Give me trust Christ. issues, fear, anxiety, verbally, emotionally, physically abused me. Yeah. And this this page is like creepily long. There are so so many many people. Solstice East, Island View Elevations. Fuck. 30 Teen Solutions. Casa by the Sea. Yeah, like the the part of the creep factor for me is like the names of these places. Spring Creek Lodge Academy. And this one is Paris's best friend, Jessica, from boarding or from Provo. I just sent you like the specific link. Mm-hmm. Just to her, because that was her um, breaking code silence Twitter. So, or there's a hashtag breaking code silence, mm-hmm. and there's a Twitter account called at breaking code SI1. And um, yeah, you this can see Jessica's photo. Jessica, who went to Provo Canyon School from 97 to 99, and it gave her trust issues, CPTSD, which is a form of PTSD, um, abandonment issues, fear of therapy, and shame. Jesus fucking Christ. So Jessica is one of the women that's in the film. Paris gathers them in their in her home and they kind of unpack the trauma. They take photos. They discuss bringing awareness. Um, and there's a scene afterwards where the girls are sitting around and talking about how when they saw the simple life and they saw Paris pretending how she didn't know how to mop or clean, mm-hmm. they knew that she'd created a character out of her trauma because they had seen. Yeah, because clearly, oh how, Jesus, it's her show, right? But they'd been, you know, they had been forced to clean and do shit jobs. Were locked in therapy. Like her life had been anything but glamorous, and they knew this. They saw it. But no one else in the world really knew. So let's take another look at the the premise. Remember how earlier I said like the premise of every episode was that she would quit. She would be too good for this and kind of make fun of the people who were actually doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. is that a form of her like exercising the 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 demons of being able to like put down the mop without being fucking strangled? 
treating the simple i never thought that i would get to the point where it's like treating the simple life show as a subversive attempt to overcome paris hilton's emotional and physical trauma as like a believable argument that it but it's blowing my mind like i never in a million years would i have thought that that would be the case i just came up here because there's just so much to take in i was like oh my god like i'm not alone it's not me and it's not my fault how sometimes i feel like so many things but sometimes like this robot and this character that i did and talking with them like i started remembering who i was before and just i don't know it makes me sad they took that away But I don't know. I'm just so confused. <laughs> but like, it's refreshing and new. I I don't really know anyone besides my family members and a very small amount of people that knew me before all of this happened and before I became this, you know, this thing. I don't know. Mask I put on and the way I am and like this extravagance and the photos of me like all this is stemmed just from this place. When I look around my life, like it's like a cartoon. I don't know, like I've created this fantasy world cartoon. I mean, I'm gl- I'm really glad that she is acknowledging that she talks about like the thing that she created the the persona that helped her deal with all this and i'm glad that she acknowledged that at some point the thing takes over yeah right and that she she's become a caricature of of a human being and like all of the opulence all of the diamonds are just like a mask um yeah because she kind of had the privilege to do that in a way that a lot of the other survivors of this camp didn't oh especially not especially, but yes. Go ahead, say your say your thing. That's Sorry. it. That, I mean, like, so I'm glad that she acknowledges that in some way. That like this is this is her coping mechanism. Um, but like, f- fuck, dude. Yeah. That we do this to kids, especially yeah. And that we and that it takes someone like Paris. I mean, like, w- there have been exposés of this thing, but like, no one would care about this group, or very f- far fewer people would care about this group if a famous TV star slash musician slash victim of a sex tape slash heiress wasn't a victim of it as well. Sure, but this film came out like a year ago, or I I'd never heard haven't of it. seen shit about no me this. Neither. Cause, so cause like how much do people care not not enough i saw so much about the paris in love reality show i saw nothing about breaking code silence and why is that but but we heard a ton about britney right the free mm-hmm. britney and britney deserved to be freed and i'm not downplaying any of that but like why did that capture everyone's uh imagination compared to this when they were both like the hot messes of 2009 or whatever yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't know if there's a specific answer. So the Hollywood Reporter asked Paris, why did you decide that now is the time to show the quote real you? And this is Paris's response. I just feel that I've been portraying and playing this character from the beginning with The Simple Life. And that's basically who the public got introduced to. 
that character. Anyone who knows me knows I'm not that way at all. And also, I've gotten to know myself so much more. She means they're doing the film, I think. Yeah. Because when you are on a reality TV and having to play this character, you kind of lose yourself almost. So I don't know. At some point in my life, I was looking back on all of it. It was so much fun and it was part of building my brand and everything. But I also know that there's a lot of young women and men who look up to me and I don't want to be remembered as that. I want to be an inspiration and a businesswoman. Back then, it was cute and fun to play that character. But now I really want to be an inspiration and be inspiring in a different way. So even in this interview, she's not she's not addressing the trauma. They're not asking no. her about the trauma. No. And um, and she's and she's downplaying. I don't know whether purposely or accidentally the kind of the canons that were that were trained on her after she started doing the show. She became the butt of every joke, even before the sex tape. Right. She allowed herself to be the idiot on TV maybe thinking that she could control it part of her armor that i've seen in a lot of the interviews that i've read is her being like oh but i was always in on the joke i knew that wasn't me but at some point they take the joke away from you yeah they start and this is like dave Chappelle's in recent years fucking up hardcore but like this is one of the reasons he walked away from Chappelle's show is that the wrong people were yelling his jokes back to him Mm. not understanding the context or the nuance or whatever else and like yeah it doesn't it becomes not yours after a while yeah what is this link oh it's her mom talking about her character no it's like a shield or a cover fuck she's probably one of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet She's Fuck your fucking face, lady. Brilliant. <laughs> and the mask is sometimes putting up the stupid persona or the voice. I, I, I just want to know where it stems from. Hmm. Oh, I, I wonder. I fucking wonder. Yeah, the, the 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 idea that she has no no self reflection of like that she could be the originator of that mask or or part of that recipe is like makes me furious. After the simple life, uh, one photograph would go for fifty thousand to a million dollars from just for one like photograph. A- like a, on paparazzi. Yeah. So Shiraz Huzan, CEO of Fame by Shiraz, said that he built the foundation of one of the biggest paparazzi companies in the world off of the back of Paris Hilton. I had over 100 guys in Los Angeles, all of them making a living off of Paris. If you know you can make a million dollars in one day, what does that look like? It's war. At least that has peaked and that we don't do that anymore because everyone's got like their own Instagram or whatever. Like, um, but like, yeah, I mean, Perez Hilton is named after Paris Hilton. Correct. The biggest gossip, horrible. I mean, he did some horrible, horrible shit over the years and has tried to rehabilitate his image since. But like, he made his bones off of drawing dicks going into people's mouths. And, you know, talking shit on people who deserved it. Scare quotes. Scare quotes. Great.
right, and that is why today we're going out on Edwin Starr. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Aviv, where can people find us on the internet? Where can people find us on the internet? You can find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Twitter and Instagram. And for longer and weirder stuff, hit us up at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Fuck, we, we really did Paris dirty. Um, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. It's the best way to never miss an episode. And rate and review us. Tell your friends if you like the show. If you want more songs of the, maybe about having sex in public, let us know. We're, we take song requests all the time. Wow. Now I know how Lindsay feels whenever I ruin the world for her. This is fucking depressing as shit. I just wanted to do a happy summer song, okay? I know. (laughs) Well, that that happened to me a couple times, too, where I'm like, oh, no, this is dark. Um, It's a dark, dark world, people. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with a new song that hopefully is slightly less depressing. Hey, uh, we'll stop doing depressing songs when we stop ruining young people's lives for no fucking reason. Exactly. Perfect. That's the deal we make for you. So until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying. That's hot. Right up to the edge of a non I can never say a not an anonymity. 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 I will die not knowing how to say that word. Anonymity. Yeah, that was right. Okay. Right up to the edge of anonymity. The, Try again. Right up to the edge of anonymity. <laughs> right up to the edge of anonymity. Like right up to the edge of see it enemy. Right up to the edge of anonymity. And <laughs> this is Lindsay. This is all in. No. I have to pee and I can't fucking say this word. Say it again.